following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. For more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. All right, we're going to have to take a little bit of a deviation. Um, I found out about 6.15 this morning that I was filling in that did not give me enough time to study up and prepare for a message out of Genesis. Um, so we're going to deviate a little bit here. We're going to put that message off a week, so hold on to your your cards. I'm sure you can use it in your, your bulletin. I'm sure you can use it again next week when we pick up again. We'll be in Philippians chapter 1 this morning, so if you want to open your Bibles to that, we'll read the text in just a minute. When I was young, um, I spent a lot of time with my, with my dad out in the garage around the house doing various repairs and projects around the house, whether it be a landscaping project outside or some remodeling or repair project inside. I was, I had the, there was, there was an expectation that I would help out and help my dad and work with him. I remember many times working with my dad as we painted, we wallpapered, we fixed electrical and plumbing problems, installed lawn sprinklers and built sheds to store garden equipment in. Cars in the 60s and 70s weren't as reliable as they are today. And I recall many evenings out in the garage working on the family vehicles, rebuilding engines every few years, fixing broken water pumps and alternators and power steering pumps repairing the AC and doing brake jobs. So even those cars weren't as, as uh, reliable as they are today, what I wouldn't give to have that 65 Mustang and that 68 Camaro that I had back in high school. would love to have those unreliable cars back again. My dad enjoyed collecting and restoring old cars. It's one of his, his hobbies, so we spent a lot of time working on those cars and restoring them. Well, I'm sure I didn't appreciate it as much as I should have at the time, in the process of doing all those things, my dad was preparing for the day when I would be on my own with my own house and with my own cars that would need to be cared for and maintained. As we worked, my dad would tell me about how all these things worked and how to go about fixing them. He gave me the confidence and the ability to tackle almost any job around the house today. I was learning during those nights and those weekends by observing, copying, and doing what my dad was, was showing and modeling for me. So one of the ways, the primary ways that we learn, our kids learn by watching and observing. They learn by example. We can do, a, we can do and we can learn a lot by reading books, and we should, and we can, we should be studying. But how do our kids learn to do a lot of things that they learn? Especially when they're, they're young. They learn by example. They watch dad tie his shoes, and then they get to try it out for themselves. As my kids were growing up, they learned to do household repairs, how to change the oil in their cars, how to do the brakes on their cars by watching it being done as my dad had taught me. They learned to cook and clean, wash clothes and mow the lawns, observing their parents in action, and then putting that action into practice, what they had observed and what they had learned. We can use that same principle to learn how to pray and pray in a biblical Way. Our prayer life can and it should be informed by biblical truths about who God is, his wisdom, his love, and his compassion. But it's also helpful to listen in on the prayers of others. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we could eavesdrop on the Apostle Paul and hear some of the prayers that float from his lips? Well, you know what? The good news is we can. Because many of his prayers were recorded for us 
in his letters. This morning, I want us to look at an example of Paul's prayers in the Philippians chapter 1. So let's stand together as we read chapter 1. The prayer itself is found in 9, 10, and 11, but I want to start with, with verse 3. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all, because I hold you in my heart. For you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And here's the prayer. It's my prayer, Paul writes, that you love, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, we thank you for your word, how it speaks to us, how it instructs us. May our hearts be changed this morning, Lord, and may we learn to pray as Paul did. Thank you for his example. May it inspire us in our prayers. In Jesus' name, amen. Imagine if Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk walked in here this morning and came up here and said, all of my fortune, my billions and billions are at your disposal. What would we ask him for? How to build a church, exactly. <laughs> Money to build a church. That would be a very good request. We don't want to be greedy. We don't want to um, assume too much here. We want to be careful and cautious. So maybe we're just asking just for a, a few million dollars would be good. I want to pay off my debts. I want to fund my children's school accounts. I want to take a nice vacation, buy a new truck. At that house that I've always wanted, and I would love to be able to retire early and comfortably. Imagine yourself, you're King Solomon, and God appears before you and says this, ask what I shall give you. What would you ask for? What if God promised to do anything you asked for the people you love the most? Your spouse, your kids, perhaps your brother or sister, perhaps members of this congregation. What is it that you would ask for on their behalf? Well, Paul had such an opportunity. And in this prayer, we can see what he asked for. Paul is praying to the infinitely rich, sovereign God of the universe, and he gets to pour out his heart before him in prayer for the Philippian Christians, a group of people that he loves very, very much. The Philippian church held a very special place in God's uh, in Paul's heart. They're the only church that he refers to as his partners in the gospel. So now Paul's got an audience before God, and he could ask God for anything for these precious saints at that church. What will it be? Will he ask for earthly riches and good health in their, their lives? Will Paul ask that their businesses prosper so that they could give more generously? Will he ask for self-esteem for these special friends? Will he ask that they be protected from persecution and trials and suffering for their, for their faith, for the sake of the gospel? Perhaps he will all be, uh, uh, pray that they would all be given spouses, 
loving a, a loving spouse, four children, a large house on 10 acres with a nice truck in the driveway, and lots of leisure time to enjoy all of God's blessings that he has provided for him. Paul could ask God for anything at this point, and this is what he asked for, that their love would abound with knowledge and discernment so that they might approve what is excellent, so that they might be blameless and pure on the day of Christ, and that they might be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Why? So that God might be glorified and praised. So how do our prayers for our spouses, for your husband, for your wife, for your kids, when you're praying for each other in the church, do our prayers match up to this lofty prayer that Paul has? Let me say, it's not bad to pray for each other when we're sick. It's not bad for God to be with us in difficult times. Those are worthy prayers. It's not, it's not wrong to pray for provision. We can see those prayers throughout Scripture. But how often do we look beyond our earthly needs and prayer, pray prayers like this for each other? So there's a number of things to take note of in Paul's prayer this morning. The first one is you're going to have to cross out what's on there and uh, rewrite what uh, what my notes are. Point one is Paul teaches us to pray for a love that is characterized by knowledge and discernment. So Paul here is asking God to give the Philippians a love that would be constantly a constantly increasing love. And this is my prayer, he writes, that your love may abound more and more. The Philippian saints already loved God, their Savior, and the gospel. Paul knew that. Yet he prays that that love would abound all the more. And when we read that word abound, what should come to mind is think about a spring of water. A spring is where water just bubbles up out of the ground. There's no need to dig a well. There's no need to install a pump that will pull the water up out of the ground. It just bubbles up on its own. A spring flows naturally and spontaneously. There's no need for any kind of mechanical intervention. We can draw water from the spring. We can fill up water bottles, and it just keeps coming. That's what Paul is requesting for the Philippians. They aren't at summer camp, sitting around the campfire and and singing kumbaya and holding hands and swinging together and getting all lovey-dovey. It's not a puppy love that we all had for our fourth-grade teachers. This is a love that's that that is blind. This is not a love that's blind. Love by its very nature is selfless. It desires to give. It seeks to promote the glory of God and the good of others. This is a love that's willing to be honest, willing to see and to speak the truth. It's a love that balances honesty and truth with care and patience and kindness. In Revelation 2, we can read, and Jesus commends the Ephesian church. He commends them for their commitment to doctrinal integrity. But then he rebukes them for their loss of love. Later on in that same chapter, he commends the church in Thyatira for their love. The opposite of what the Ephesian church is. But what does he rebuke them for? He rebukes them for their lack of doctrinal integrity. Both extremes were wrong. A loveless knowledge produces pride. But love rejoices with the truth. 
So the love that Paul is praying for and asking for is a love that loves truth. This love sees truth clearly. It speaks it lovingly. It hears it humbly and it defends it firmly. It's a love that goes beyond good intentions and well-meaning affections. The love that Paul is requesting is a love that's recharacterized by insight and knowledge. Love requires instruction at times. We must know someone before we can really love them. Jesus needed to become a living reality here on earth for us before we could love him. We need a personal and spiritual acquaintance with all the things of God before we can fully delight in them. Love does not act on blind impulse, but on knowledge. Love needs to be fed and nourished and taught in order to act intelligently. In Romans 10, Paul writes that the Jews had a zeal for God. And he says that to them in a positive way. Zeal is good. It's to be commended. But it was a misguided zeal. Paul goes on to say that their zeal was not according to knowledge, that they were ignorant in the righteousness of God, and they were pursuing a righteousness of their own. They sincerely believed that they were serving God when they excluded the Christians from the synagogues. They sincerely believed that they were serving God when they went about killing Christians, believing them to be heretics. Heretics, Zealous, yes, but their, their zealousness was misguided and it was ignorant. Bare knowledge isn't enough. Something, sometimes something more is needed. And that what is needed was discernment. So Paul says that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. There are many who are wise regarding the teachings and the instructions and the letter of the word, but make grievous errors. And when they go about to apply it, those principles in their life and the lives of others, we face a vast variety of circumstances in our world and in our lives that call for prudence and discernment. And when we and when we try to deal with them in a loving manner, there are times when certain valid, correct responses are not expedient or prudent. It's those times where wisdom and discernment are indispensable to determine the appropriate response. Else, otherwise, we run the risk of indiscretion and folly. We need to hear people say we need to be able to read our audience. We need to discern who's with us and around us and who we're speaking to. A.W. Pink says the chief work of our judgment or discernment is to perceive what is proper for the time, the place, the company where we are, that we may order our behavior aright. We've got to be aware of what's going on around us before we speak or before we act. Christian love is to be biblically informed. It should be well instructed. It should be knowledgeable and it needs to be discerning. If love is not regulated by the knowledge of scripture and discernment, that is the result of mature Christian experience can easily fall into fanaticism and ignorant zealousness. Love that is informed, it is knowledgeable and discerning will flow like a spring. And that's what Paul is praying for and asking for the Philippians to receive. So when we pray for each other, for our loved ones, is this kind of prayer at the top of our list or somewhere somewhere near the top of our list? Secondly, Paul prays for what is excellent. Taking a closer look at Paul's prayer, it becomes clear that this love is not an end in itself. It's rather a means to an end. Paul tells the Philippians that he prays that their love may increase with knowledge and discernment. Why? So that they may approve what is excellent. When we go out and buy a car, at least I do with my wife's help, because she's really good at this, we take it for a test drive. 
We research reliability. We take into account gas mileage, the features that it has, the cost, and then we decide which is the right car for us, which is the most excellent choice for us, given our set of circumstances. So what does Paul do? When, uh, so what Paul does here is exactly that same thing. When he refers to excellence, the text itself gives us some clues about what Paul has in mind. He says, first, what is excellent is not easily discerned. To discern and to approve what is excellent, Christians must be characterized by, characterized by a love that is wise and discerning. It might be helpful to consider this from the opposite point of view. Paul doesn't pray this for them. He doesn't pray that their love might abound more and more in ignorance and insensitivity or that it would increase in stupidity and hard-heartedness or in cheap sentimentality and nostalgia. A lack of wisdom and knowledge and insight would lead us to make these kinds of mistakes. It would land us to be like this. So Paul is asking for God to give them a love that is discriminating, that's discerning, that's based on knowledge. Christian love for which Paul prays is controlled by knowledge of the gospel. It's comprehensive in its, in its moral discernment. These constraints do not stifle our love for each other. They ensure its purity and its value. Such love, Paul is saying, must abound more and more in our lives. So he prays that for the Philippians. The point here is that Christians must abound more and more in this quality of love if they are to test and approve what is excellent. We can assume, we can assume then that what is excellent is not always obviously easy to discern. It's not obvious. What is excellent will often be difficult to spot by someone whose love is lacking the characteristics of knowledge and discernment. Paul simply assumes that unless your love is abounding more and more in knowledge and discernment, you will not be able to differentiate between what is good or bad or between what is good and what is excellent, you won't have the tools that you need to make those judgment values, those values, those judgments. The second clue is the use of the expression, what is excellent? Paul wants believers to grow in their love in order to discern and approve, to test out those things that are excellent, the things that really and truly matter in life. There are countless decisions that we make in this life, and it's not always easy to make a straightforward decision between right, what's right and what's wrong or what's good and what's better or what's excellent. What we need is the kind of discernment that Paul's praying for to help us perceive the difference between the choices that we have and then to make the best possible choice. That's what Paul means here by choosing what is excellent. So love that is shaped and honed by knowledge and moral insight is the requirement for testing and approving what is excellent. When we have a love that is wise and discerning, we'll be set free from selfishness, greed, jealousy, pity, and other nonsense. With those cast aside, we're able then to hone in, to focus in on what is really important, what's truly important. And we can begin to develop a taste then for what's of value. Our priorities and choices become more and more in line with God's priorities. We're able then to focus on the more important issues of life and keep the less crucial ones in their proper perspective. Love characterized by knowledge and discernment is able to give us the good sense to commit ourselves, our time, our finances, our lives to what matters the most. 
And finally, or uh, next one, the next clue that Paul gives us is helping us to understand what example is, is other themes that we see throughout this letter. In Philippians 1.6, Paul tells the Philippians that he has always praised for them with joy. Why? Because he is confident that he who began a good work in them will carry it out to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Paul is not imagining here a simple maintenance of the Philippians' faith, but a positive improvement in their maturity, in their Christ-likeness, until it's ultimately capped by the perfection achieved in the last day, the day of Christ. Paul's confidence that the Lord will bring about such growth does not in the least diminish the need for a personal resolution, uh, res, uh, resolution or resolve to grow. Just two uh, chapters later in this book, in this letter, Paul testifies to his own aim for his life. Philippians 3, he says that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And he explains this where he sees himself in that process. Not that I have already attained this, or I'm already perfect, but I press on to, t- to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says here that he is straining forward. He's straining forward for what lies ahead. The image here is of a team of oxen. If you've seen those on, on TV or on a movie, you, the ox could be yoked together and they're pulling a plow behind them. And they're trying to pull that plow through, through hard ground. And they're straining against the yoke. You can see their muscles as they're straining, as they're pulling. They stumble on the ground from time to time. They dig in and they are breathing hard. They're getting sweaty. They are working hard at their task. They are straining at times to go forward. That's the image that Paul is giving us here when we're straining to move forward. So that's the vision of what Paul wants us to have as we strive, as we strain to move forward in our lives. It isn't easy. It can be hard work. But like Paul, we need to forget about what's behind and strain forward to what lies ahead the upward call of Christ in our lives. There's other themes in Philippians. So just bear with me as we look at some of these really quickly. Philippians 1, Paul writes, For me, for to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. At which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am a hard press between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. A couple verses later, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that are standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Chapter 2, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. 
Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interest of others. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Chapter four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And again in chapter four, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, which you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the pursuit of excellence doesn't always turn on simple distinctions between right and wrong. It turns rather on delicate choices that reflect our value system, our priorities, our heart and our mind. That's why Paul prays that the love of the Philippians would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment. He wants their hearts and their minds to be profoundly Christian. If not, They will not be able to discern and approve what is truly excellent. Perhaps some practical example will will help clarify Paul, Paul's prayer. Each one of these decisions that we face has a multitude of answers and choices often, each one with good answers and each with excellent answers. Each one addressed in Scripture, each one of these is addressed in Scripture so that the one who abounds in love with knowledge and discernment will be able to approve or discern what is excellent. First one is, how do we spend our time? There are a lot of ways to spend time. Which are the most excellent ways? How much should I spend? How much time should I spend at work each week? How do I spend my leisure time? How many activities, whether it be dance or drama or sports or debate, should my kids be involved in? How important is truly is gathering on Sunday morning like this to worship God together as, as, as the church? Is there time in our schedules to attend care groups, youth group, to serve the church, to serve each other? Are we committed with our time to pursue what is truly excellent? How do we go about making major decisions in life? Getting married. Children, having children, our education, what career to choose. How do we go about making decisions or change jobs or move from one city to the other, to another? Are we committed in all of these decisions to, to approve and to choose and to follow what is excellent? How, we, how do we deal with difficult relationships between spouses or with our children or with each other? How do we navigate the teen years? How do we deal with boyfriends and girlfriends and dating? Are we committed in our families to approve what is excellent? Or do we just go along with what the culture teaches? What about in our 
times of reading? What magazines am I looking at? What what news articles or, or blogs or things on the Internet are we spending time looking at and reading, listening to? Other reading materials, and whether it be novels, books that could be the Bible or Christian books on theology or Christian living. Are we committed in our reading habits to, to do what is excellent? Do you make time for personal prayer? We're praying with and for your family for prayer meetings. Have you taken steps to improve in this regard? Are we committed to do what is excellent with our prayer time? How do we decide what to do with our money for the glory of God? Do our offerings belong to God, but the rest is mine? Or does everything belong to God and I'm just a steward of what he has given me? Are we committed in our finances and how we spend our money to excellency? Behind all these answers are questions and choices. Choices that scripture guides us with. Scripture is not silent on these things. A love that is knowledgeable and discerning will then be able to navigate through life and the maze of decisions that we face every day and choose what is best, what is the most excellent out of all the options that are before us. So Paul's prayer helps us to cut through the maze. What he wants is Christians to pursue at every stage of their spiritual pilgrimage. He wants them to pursue excellence. Paul simply prays to his heavenly father then and asks them that these believers would pursue what is excellent. Paul's not a man who will be satisfied with the status quo. He knows that we are destined for the perfection to be achieved when Christ returns. Paul wants us to press towards it now. He cannot be lackadaisical in his praying because the more fruitful and the more holy he becomes, the more he perceives how much further he has to go. And he wants the Philippian believers to share in that same vision. Paul is passionate about pursuing spiritual excellence in his own life. So he pursues it himself, we are told, and he prays and asks that his followers, that this people in the Philippian church would do it as well through his prayer for them. So each one of us needs to be asking this question this morning. To what extent do I pray for excellent things? Things that are judged excellent in God's eyes, both for myself and for those around me. Do I pray that my love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, that I'll be able to distinguish between what is passable and what is excellent, between what is acceptable and what is best? Am I testing out? Am I approving what is best in my own life? And do we pray this for not only ourselves, but do we pray it for our spouses, for our children, for our friends, for our brothers and sisters in this church? Have we become content with mediocrity in our lives? I don't want to rock the boat. The status quo is just fine. Thank you. I've grown a bit more mature over the years, and that's good enough. No need to keep on straining forward. It's just too much work. It's fine if Paul wants to do that, but not for me. I'm content with my level of maturity and Christlikeness. Let's not let our hearts become hardened like that. I want to be able to, as one of your pastors, to be able to rejoice and celebrate with you in every step that you take forward as we're straining towards excellence. Each step is a work of the Lord in our lives. We need to be grateful and thank God for the work 
that he's begun and that he will continue to, to, to work out in our lives. Let's not become proud or arrogant or be, be content with just standing still in life. The work isn't finished yet. In the midst of rejoicing, let's keep pressing on. Let's keep straining to go forward together. Third, Paul prays with a long-term perspective in this. Not only does abounding love help us and approve what is best, it also helps us to be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. It fills us with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul prays that the believers will test and approve what is excellent in order that he tells them that you may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ. It would be filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Not only is God giving us wise love that helps with all the interpersonal skills and decision making that we need to, to go through, but it's, it's transforming us into the people who will be fit to see him someday face to face on that day of Christ. The word that Paul used translated here as pure, it focuses on our sincerity. It implies a lack of mixed motives. It's a transparent integrity that has nothing to hide. The pure are not concealing their real motives, and they aren't willing to compromise the message of truth in order to win over and please an audience. We are surrounded today in the on, on TV, on a lot of things you can see on the Internet, men and women who call themselves religious, who say they're Christian. We're surrounded by all sorts of religious hucksters and heretics who water down the gospel, they preach a false gospel, they resort to trickery and mockery. They're mocking the very God they claim to serve simply to improve their own following or to increase their own following and for financial gain. We don't want to be like those people. The pure are men and women of sincerity whose motive is to prefer others, to love others as themselves. So Paul asked God to give that very purity and sincerity to his partners in Philippi. Wise and wise and discerning love will help us to, to, to be blameless. Sinless perfection will not be achieved until the day of the Lord. So let's get that through our minds. We're not going to get there until the day of the Lord. But there is a blamelessness that begins now because for, before we achieve perfection, and that's not, that's not what Paul has in mind here. You're not going to achieve pure, pure blamelessness in this life. But a blameless man is one who does not stumble into sin or cause others to stumble into sin. Paul goes on and says, to be filled with the fruit of righteousness is to be characterized by the conduct, the actions, the words, and the thoughts that God himself judges to be right. The picture here given is a tree of or a vine that produces fruit. And the one who makes the fruit grow, provides fruitfulness, is, is, is Christ Jesus. Don Carson says this about this text. He says, we pour, we are to pour our energy into the task, but we must understand that where this fruit appears, it is the product of spiritual growth made possible by Jesus Christ. Just as in Galatians, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, Gentleness and self-control constitute the fruit of the Spirit. So here, every righteous thing the Philippians say or do or think is the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. Paul never exhorts us merely to try harder apart from trying to be Christians worthy of Christ Jesus. 
and he is the first to acknowledge that the righteousness, the righteous living that ensues is finally the product of the grace of God. Pulling this all together, Paul prays that the love of these Christians would abound more and more in the knowledge and discernment so that they will able to discern and approve what is truly excellent and all this so that they would be pure and blameless, sincere, not causing themselves or others to stumble and to be filled with the fruit of righteousness with a view to the day of Christ. Paul includes in this prayer something that's a forward-looking dimension that's characteristic of many of Paul's prayers. Paul always has the eternal view in focus. He's aware of the here and the now, but he never loses sight of the etern- of eternity in his writings and in his prayers. Paul does not invoke the day of Christ as a threat to the Philippians. He isn't trying to scare them into showing more signs of righteous conduct or face horrible judgment. Rather, he is saying something that most Christians will find even more compelling, and that we should find more compelling. Paul is telling them that they must live with a view to the day of Christ. They must live each day in such a way that they show they are moving toward that day and are utterly constrained by that view of moving towards it, of straining forward. Even now, Paul says, we should live with that day in view, a view that will produce righteous fruit in anticipation of that coming day. That's part of the call towards excellence. The church, our little church, the the church universal, it's a microcosm of the new heaven and the new earth. We are still contaminated by failures, by sin, by relapses, by rebellion, by self-centeredness, by greed. We are not yet what we ought to be. But by the grace of God, sorry, I lost my place. By the grace of God, we are not what we were. Each one of us is not where we were a year ago, two years ago. For as long as we remain in this life, we are to struggle against sin and anticipate, so far as we're able to, what it will be like to live in the untarnished wonder of perfect righteousness the day of Christ comes. Our proper citizenship is in heaven. We need to keep that in mind. We need not lose sight of that. We have already been seated with Christ in the heavenlies. But until that consummation, until that final day, we live on this imperfect and sinful and cursed earth. We're to see ourselves as an outpost of the new heaven and the new earth in a world that stands under the judgment of God. So I don't think it's too much of a stretch to say that in this prayer, Paul is praying for nothing less than revival. He's praying that the Christians might right now what we ought to be, what we, what we certainly one day will be. The text teaches us that to pray that we will test out and approve for ourselves the highest the best, the holiest, the most excellent, with a view towards eternity, with a view towards the day of Christ. Paul's prayer insists that Christians are to be as holy as pardoned sinners can be this side of eternity. And we are to pray towards that end. It's in this way that Paul's prayer for what is excellent is tied to the long view, again, to that view, that day of Christ. Don Carson says this. He says, The point to stress in this context is that although Paul's prayer for what is excellent is equivalent to praying for revival, what he is doing is praying. He's not simply exhorting people to do better 
nor is he trying to organize revival. Still less is he berating fellow believers for their lack of revival. What he is doing is praying for revival. For if true revival is a work of God, if transforming and discerning love that enables believers to approve what is best is at the bottom of the fruit of God's work in our lives, if true righteousness is fruit that comes through Jesus Christ, then however much God may use means, the means themselves do not guarantee anything. Only God can produce transformation. Only God can grant a revival. Judging by Paul's example, however much we must work out our own salvation with fear and trembling, we must also acknowledge that our best efforts in this regard are nothing other than God's working in us to will and to act according to his good purpose. So it is urgent that we ask God to work in us. It is vital that we learn to pray this prayer with Paul. If you look at the Paul, the prayers of the Apostle Paul, what he longs for more than anything else is for people what he's his you see his care and his concern for their spiritual welfare. Doesn't mean that Paul doesn't care about uh, other challenges. He doesn't care about illness or struggles, the difficulties we face. He does. You can see him mentioning those and praying for those from time to time. But he did put them into proper perspective. What we all need more than anything, more than good health, more than food and clothing, more than nice homes and cars, more than vacations. What we need as believers is to be abounding in wise and discerning love, to be pure and blameless and full of the fruit of righteousness as we race together towards that day of Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was a very influential British pastor in the 20th century. A few weeks before he died, he was asked, after decades of fruitful ministry and extraordinary activity, how he was coping with the physical suffering and the serious weaknesses that he that he had that it took most of his strength to get out of bed into his recliner and back. His response was, was these words out of Luke 20. I do not rejoice that the spirits, I do not, sorry, he said, do not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice in this, that your name is written in heaven. In other words, he was saying, my joy is not tied to his success in ministry. It wasn't tied to his physical strength. Ministry and health can be taken away. His joy was simply the fact that he was known and loved by God. A joy that was tied to his salvation and to the truth that his name was written in heaven and that it would never be taken away from him. And he added this, with that, I am perfectly content. We take some time and we think about what Paul's praying for here for his friends in Philippi, it should cause us to all stop and ponder the implications for a moment if God were to answer that prayer. The prayer spells, this prayer would spell the death of entrenched mediocrity, a smug self-satisfaction. It would be death of contentment with our own progress and sanctification. This isn't a prayer for what's okay or good or satisfactory. It's not a prayer for being content with mediocrity. Paul's praying here for a love that would abound more and more, that we would approve and pursue what is excellent. Paul raises the bar very, very high for us. So together, church, let's, let's be praying this for each other. Let's pursue what is excellent together. Let's pursue knowledge. Let's have a love that abounds 
more and more every year. Our love should be abounding more and more for each other. Let's pray. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Lord, it would be our desire to see that fulfilled in our lives, the lives of our family and our friends and our church. We want to be men and women, young and old, who are pursuing and striving for what is excellent. Help us to live in light of eternity and to strive forward the day of Christ in view. For your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.